It's great to be back here again. I've met some of you before and some of you I don't know. I have visited this church, but it's a while back now. I think it's about uh, 18 months ago or something like that. So uh, it's good to be back here. So the question today is, and I'll have to just do a little bit of checking to see how we're going, uh, how Gavin and I are working together. Uh, the question today is, how green is our God? Now, for some of you, that will ring bells, won't it? Because some of you know a song that goes, how great is our God? The question is, how green is our God? Now, I need to say some things uh, in the introduction uh, to this sermon today because it's, going to, it's a thematic sermon. It's, a, it's about a particular issue, which means we're not going to look at one passage. I'll be sort of taking texts out of the Bible from various places which is sometimes called proof texting. I hope I won't be abusing uh, the texts. I hope I will be using them appropriately, but it will be a bit of a proof text pudding this morning. Um, and when you take a, a question like that, how green is our God? One of the problems is the Bible is not Wikipedia. You can't simply uh, look up the Bible for the word environment and see what the Bible says about environment or creation and nor can you google the Bible and say how green is our God and get the answer so it's a bit of a mishmash in that sense uh, but there are big biblical uh, concepts and parts of the biblical narrative that do give us a few clues about this the other thing I should say is today is not really about action. So I'm afraid that some of the greenies amongst us, especially my Arosha friends, might be a bit frustrated because at the end of the sermon, I'm not going to give a list of 10 things that Christians must do because this is how green God is or something like that. We're going to talk a little bit about the theological background and I hope by the end I will have convinced you about how green God is. But I'm not really going to talk about action. And finally, I'm going to say, uh, I hope we can have a conversation after the sermon. So I hope there's a bit of time for discussion, at which point some of you, especially the, the more green people amongst you, might leap up and say, well, it's obvious that we must do this Maybe it's obvious that we must, on September the 15th, was it, Anna? We must go and find nurdles. It really doesn't sound like a scientific term for plastic, but whatever nurdles, <coughs> excuse me, whatever nurdles are, maybe we must go and find them on September the 15th. And my final uh, introductory comment is I will talk a lot about climate change today. Now, of course, climate change isn't the only issue to do with uh, the the world that we live in uh, that we need to think about but I will focus on climate change because it's it's a pretty significant issue okay enough introduction um, in a famous essay first a lecture in 1966 and then essay in 1967 uh, a historian called Lynn White wrote uh, an essay called the historical roots of our ecological crisis and Lynn White argued that Christianity was an anthropocentric religion and it could be blamed for our ec ecological crisis. This is 50 years ago, remember. According, <clears throat> according to Lynn White, 
the idea of dominion or rule which comes out of the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the Bible, that's where the blame lies. And White describes the problematic view like this. Let me quote White. This is the view that White is saying is the problem. Man named all the animals, thus establishing his dominance over them. God planned all of this explicitly for man's benefit and rule. No item in the physical creation had any purpose except to serve man's purposes. Especially in its Western form, Christianity is the most anthropocentric religion the world has seen. That's what Lynn White said in that famous essay. Now, White actually describes himself as a churchman, and he calls for an alternative Christian view based on St Francis of Assisi, who, by the way, the current Pope takes his name from. White says we need to reject that first view that he describes, uh, reject the idea that nature has no reason for existence except to serve human beings. He says, both our present science and our present technology are so tinctured with orthodox Christian arrogance towards nature that no solution for our ecologic crisis can be expected from them alone. Since the roots of our trouble are so largely religious, the remedy must also be essentially religious, whether we call it that or not. Well, I sort of agree with White, but I think that we have deep Christian theological reasons for taking another view and for saying that that first view is wrong. It's wrong to say that the creation is just something that God made for man to use. So a key question that we're looking at is, how should we understand humanity's relationship with the rest of creation? Is it about rights or responsibilities? And a related question is, what does it mean to bear God's image? If human beings are made in the image of God, what does that mean? I think part of the answer is that we are like God in creating and caring for creation. This is also a classic sort of science and faith issue where there is some sort of mutual interaction between the claims of science and theological reflection. So I want to draw your attention to two assumptions about science. Please, Gavin. Two background assumptions. Firstly, and I'm assuming this, I'm not going to give you a lot of reasons for it, but I'm assuming that science informs our theological reflection. That Christians ought to assume, for example, uh, in the case of climate change, Christians ought to assume that the best of rigorous science is true. Science feeds our theological wrestling. There's so much that science has to say that, that is theologically relevant. And there's so much that Christian theology has to say that is relevant to dealing with what science tells us. And as scientific understanding of the world increases, so we too have more data, if you like, to do our theology. No, it's not that we're rewriting basic Christian theological convictions, but we do revisit our theology uh, in the light of new information about science. And let me give you one brief example of new information about science. It's only 10 or 15 years maximum that we've known all about, or at least that we've mapped, the human genome. 
mapping the human genome, the basic information that determines how we grow physically, that has offered us a whole new line of evidence for the tree of life and the evolution of, living, of life on this planet. For example, we won't go into that anymore now. Uh, a second background assumption is that the science of climate change is robust. I accept what the world's experts tell us, which is that humans are changing the planet in dangerous ways. And it's broader than just climate change. Lynn White was correct to say that we are facing something of an ecological crisis. We know the deeply unsettling stories of problems of waste and resource use, plastic in the oceans, nurdles to be exact, or to, be, to specify something that I don't know what I'm talking about, uh, desertification, the amount of energy now that computer data centres are using, these are issues that we need to wrestle with. And behind these tangible problems lie our expectations about constant growth, about our lifestyles. And it's great that Pete was preaching about consumerism last week because this issue is, comes out of our attitudes to the world that we live in and what our expectations are of how rich we will be and how rich our children will be, for example. We have, for example, an expectation of increasing wealth. But why should every generation expect to have more and bigger and better stuff or to travel more air miles than their parents or their grandparents? Before I get to the theology, let me make a couple of preliminary comments about how we respond to climate change and the science involved. Some people are denialists. You've probably heard the term. It's a deep sort of scepticism, not just a careful asking of questions, but a, a scepticism that says, I don't believe what the scientists are telling us for one reason or another, perhaps psychological or political or social reasons but some people say that climate change is not occurring or that human beings play little or no part in it. I'm not going to argue that they are wrong. I'm not going to give you all the reasons why I think they're wrong. I'll just say I think that it's the height of arrogance to suggest that we know better than the considered opinion of an overwhelming majority of the world's experts in the field. They say that uh, human beings are affecting the planet in deeply troubling ways, I think it's our responsibility to believe them. It doesn't necessarily mean that we or anyone is absolutely certain or that we can prove the case. You can just imagine if you had a climate scientist in the room, and I don't know, maybe we have, and you get them up the front and you say, okay, I'll believe climate change is occurring if you just prove it to me. The scientist might well say, well, that's not quite how science works. It's not possible to just prove in that sort of simple sense that climate change is occurring. But it is the considered opinion of the experts around the world who work in these fields. And a second uh, preliminary comment about the nature of science, and that's the precautionary principle. Thanks, Gavin. Um, the precautionary principle says this, and we use it all the time. 
It is rational to take appropriate precautions if there's a plausible risk of significant harm. Sometimes, for example, packing an umbrella is appropriate on an overcast day to avoid getting wet. Always wearing a bike helmet or a seatbelt is appropriate, I think, due to the increased risk. You can die very easily without a seatbelt or a bike helmet. The cost is not very much, therefore, and the government now legislates it, you must do those things because it's a precaution, not because you know you're going to have a car accident or fall off your bike, but because it's a plausible risk, therefore, there's appropriate action to take. We take out insurance, and that's appropriate under some circumstances. So, if there's a plausible risk of significant danger, then it's our responsibility not to ignore it. And I think that's the case that we're facing with climate change. We aren't dealing with absolute certainty, we're dealing with plausible risk. Okay, so with all of that background, let me offer you five theological reasons to take creation seriously. And for me, I deliberately call it creation, not the environment, to try and make, a, if you like, a Christian point about the nature of the world we live in. For Christians, it is God's world. For Christians, it is a creation. So, the first reason, it's God's stuff. It's God's stuff, it's not environment, it's God's creation. And now I think we have some people lined up to do some readings, is that right? If we do, let's have a reading from Psalm 24. Thanks James. All right, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, the King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. So a psalm that praises the Lord Almighty, the one who is sovereign over everything, and it starts with, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. It's God's stuff. It's not our stuff. We need to recognise God's absolute sovereignty over the whole of creation. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made 
Or do you remember God's words to Job as Job thinks of questioning God? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Where were you, Job? You weren't there, Job. God is the creator and sovereign. So it's God's stuff is reason number one for taking the creation seriously. Reason number two, could we watch this video, please? The first story my father told me and the first story that I told each of you. In the beginning, there was nothing. Nothing but the silence of an infinite darkness. But the breath of the Creator fluttered against the face of the void, whispering, Let there be light. And light was. And it was good. The first day. And then the formless light began to take on substance and shape. The second day. And our world was born, a beautiful, fragile home, and a great warming light nurtured its days. And a lesser light ruled the nights, and there was evening, and morning, another day. And the waters of the world gathered together, and in their midst emerged dry land. Another day passed. And the ground put forth the growing things, a thick blanket of green stretching across all creation. And the waters, too, teemed with life. Great creatures of the deep that are no more. Vast multitudes of fish, some of which may still swim beneath these seas. And soon, the sky was streaming with birds. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Now the whole world was full of living beings, Everything that creeps, everything that crawls, and every beast that walks upon the ground. And it was good. It was all good. There was light, and air, and water, and soil, all clean and unspoiled. There were plants, and fish, and fowl, and beast, each after their own kind, all part of the greater whole, all in their place, and all was in balance. It was paradise, the jewel in the Creator's palm. and a half question if God stopped at day five and a half of creation just before Genesis 1:26, when human beings appear on the scene would it have been good would there have been a universe of value or does its value only come from day, the second half of day five, when human beings arrive on the scene? Six times in Genesis, before the creation of humanity, it was good. God created a good world. 
I'm not a seven-day creationist, but using the narrative day after day, it was good before human beings even appear on the scene. There is something intrinsically good about the creation, about the non-human creation. It's not just good for utilitarian reasons so that human beings can use it or abuse it. Now listen to the all-encompassing scope of redemption. Could we have the reading from Romans chapter 8, please? Thanks, Melanie. <clears throat> I, <clears throat> I consider that our present suffering as, is not... Sorry. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. We hope for what they already have. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Thank you. Can we have second reason up there, Gavin? It was good. The creation is intrinsically valuable. The, the creation is part of redemption. Now, we don't understand the significance of what Romans is talking about there, except to say it doesn't just talk about human beings. It talks about a much bigger picture of redemption, of making things right. The creation matters and will be redeemed. Back in Leviticus 25, the people were commanded to leave, leave the land rest one year in seven Listen to, to Colossians 1. In Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. In him, all things hold together. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So reason number one was that it's God's stuff. Reason number two is that the creation, the non-human creation, is valuable in itself, not just so that humans can use it. Reason number three, humans are to exercise responsible dominion. Now, I think we have a reader here for this. Is that right? Or no, I'm reading this bit. Okay, let me read Genesis 1, 27 to 28. 
So God created mankind in his own image. I would have picked a non-gender specific term there. Uh, So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This has sometimes been called the cultural mandate or the creation mandate. The responsibility given to human beings made in the image of God to fill, to subdue and to rule over the earth. But of course those words fill, subdue and rule can be interpreted in various ways and in part what we're doing today is we're thinking about how we interpret that word rule. What does it mean to rule or to have dominion over the non-human creation. A king's dominion does not actually tell us how the king's ruling. There are many ways that kings can have dominion. Some totally autocratic and cruel, others caring for the population. I should be talking about prime ministers actually, shouldn't I? So we are rulers, we do have dominion, but and, and that's obvious, that's obvious even for non-Christians. It's obvious that we are in what some people are calling the Anthropocene, the time when human beings have got so much control over the natural environment. We do have dominion, but the question is, what sort of dominion? And I think this is where the biblical concept of stewardship is really important. The steward was the person in the house who was given responsibility for managing the household affairs. They were a ruler, if you like. They had this responsibility under the owner of the house to call the shots about how the house was managed. But they're managing on behalf of somebody else. It's a delegated authority to rule. And our task as human beings, is to participate in the divine ordering for creation's flourishing, for human flourishing too. It is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. So, the third reason is that humans are to exercise responsible dominion, and I know I haven't given you the specifics. Fourthly, it's about justice. Love your neighbour, here and there, now and in the future. Do I have to remind you of Jesus' most famous parable? So this religious person goes to Jesus and he says roughly, Mulheron paraphrase, I've done everything right, I'm a really good religious person, I've obeyed all the rules, Uh, is that okay? His question was, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? So Jesus asks him what the law says, what the Torah says, what the first five books of what we call the Old Testament say. He answers, quoting Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Great says Jesus, do this and you will live. 
but he's a bit of a stickler for exact details. He's a bit of a legalist. He wants a very, very clear answer about how, what he has to do. So he says, trying to justify himself, who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, now do we have a reader who's going to read from a man was going down? Thank you. So you want me to start down? Oh, yeah. okay. <clears throat> uh, in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side but a Samaritan as he traveled came where the man was and when he saw him he took pity on him he went to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn and took care of him the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper look after him he said and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Thank you. And I think those of you who were here last week, that was the reading for last week as well, wasn't it? Is that right? No? Maybe not. Okay, no, it could be the reading that Jeff will bring you when he talks about the poor. Okay, you know the story though. Do you know, do you know that sea level rise has already caused villages in the Pacific to have to be relocated? It's not clear the degree to which this sea level rise is because of human-induced global warming or not. We won't know the exact uh, causes of this storm or that storm or this amount of sea level rise or that. In 100 years, if the sea has risen by one or two metres, then we will know for sure. Pacific Islanders are our neighbours. What does it mean to be neighbour to them. Africans suffering from an encroaching Sahara desert are our neighbours. What does it mean to be neighbour to them and their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren? Now you might think that the poor will always be with us. Remember Jesus used that phrase and it's a phrase that can be used as an excuse. But do you know that that phrase is from Deuteronomy and Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy? Let me quote Deuteronomy 15:11. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy. That's the call of God to us through the Old Testament, through Jesus' words when he, when he tells this parable of the Good Samaritan. We in Australia are in a very, 
very privileged position. We can easily afford to build higher sea walls down at Mentone if you live at Mentone and think that the sea is rising. We can afford to buy more air conditioners if the weather gets a bit warm. We can afford to produce enough food for our population. We won't be affected for the most part by climate change for a long time to come, except it'll be a bit warmer outside in summer. Perhaps, perhaps if you live in the hills, as the bushfires get worse, you might be directly affected yourself. Let me quote from a document written for the US National Association of Evangelicals by an acquaintance of mine. She says, while others debate the science and politics of climate change, my thoughts go to the poor people who are neither scientists nor politicians. They will never study carbon dioxide in the air or acidification of the ocean, but they will suffer from dry wells in the Sahel of Africa and floods along the coasts of Bangladesh. Their crops will fail while our supermarkets are full. They will suffer while we study. It cost the Samaritan to care for the man in need. It cost him time and expense, inconvenience, and he put himself at risk. It will cost the wealthy of this world to make the changes necessary to care for the poor of the world in this climate change century. So there you have four theological reasons why we ought to take creation care, if that's what you want to call it, seriously. It's God's stuff. It's good in itself. Humans are called to exercise responsible dominion. And it's about justice, caring for our neighbour. Finally, if none of the above convinces you, let me remind you sort of somewhat flippantly about pure self-interest. Do it for selfish reasons, if you like. A significantly warmed planet, a planet of depleting ecological diversity, less fish, more expensive food, more plastic in the ocean, it's not very pleasant. That's the planet that some of you, your children, your grandchildren are facing. Of course, baby boomers and Generation X, most of us will die before uh, the significant effects hit us. But most of you are younger than me. That's the planet, that's the century that you're facing. So the fifth reason, not a very good Christian reason, is enlightened self-interest. Okay, here ends the sermon. It's a difficult issue. What do we do about it? If you're convinced that it is our responsibility to do something about it, to take it seriously, what do we do? Well, I'm not going to tell us what to do. I am going to say I think we need to resist being PC about CC. We need to resist being politically correct about climate change. We need to have an open mind about what the best way is. Now, I'm not suggesting these things, but it's very easy to simply pick up the mantra. Now, for example, I, I would suggest that we ought to think very, very seriously about new, using nuclear energy for baseload power. 
Now, using nuclear energy is something that maybe, maybe my friends from Arrocha are now cringing in their seats. Um, using nuclear energy is something that we have in the past thought, many people have thought, we just shouldn't go that way. Now, with an awareness of the necessity for constant baseload energy and the problem of any sort of uh, uh, electricity generated from burning anything, we realise we do have a problem. So there are technical arguments about uh, nuclear energy versus uh, the renewables. Can the renewables give us baseload power or not? And we won't go into that now. But let's have a discussion if you feel like discussing or commenting. Um, the church tends to be a bit slow in its corporate discussing. Uh, we're now faced with an issue that we need to be uh, rather more quick about uh, discussing and uh, making changes about. But I'm going to stop talking now and uh, hand the microphone to anyone who has a question or a brief comment. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the very informative talk. Um, I think it starts from governments. Um, uh, and what we can do to influence governments is a, is a fairly uh, significant thing. For example, um, I purchased uh, solar panels uh, some 10, 15 years ago. They were economically good to do, uh, something like 34 cents per kilowatt hours went back into the grid. What have governments done recently? Reduced it to 8 cents per kilowatt hours where it becomes non-economical. So my point is we've got to get governments to get serious about it um, because as you said before, they're your leaders and so forth. So I just want your thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, I think I think you're right, but we know what governments do, don't they? They watch which way the wind is blowing, no pun intended, and uh, and they go with the way they're hearing the electorate. If the electorate doesn't cry out loud enough for uh, serious investment in alternatives, uh, then governments won't do it. And we've seen. I, th I think I don't know if uh, many of you people in the room remember. Uh, Kevin Rudd's famous statement, climate change is the moral, the greatest moral issue facing us today or something like that. And some people thought, great, we now have somebody in power, and I don't think he was quite in power then, but uh, who's going to take it seriously, whatever taking it seriously means. I'm not, I'm not saying which particular way that means, but take it seriously. Well, we also know what happened to Kevin Rudd, how he backed off, how Julia Gillard backed off, how Malcolm Turnbull backed off. Malcolm Turnbull backed off a while back and then just last week Malcolm Turnbull backed off and look what happened to Malcolm Turnbull. Um, it's a very difficult process and unless the electorate, that's us, makes it clear that we want them to take it seriously, they won't do it. They're only looking at election cycles of three years and this is a problem that is decades and a century ahead of us. Uh, what are your thoughts on the treatment of animals as Christian stewards over creation? Thoughts on the treatment of animals. Um, I think that we can all say that we ought to treat animals responsibly because animals are part of God's good creation. But that doesn't actually answer your question, does it? <laughs> um, 
I think um, the treatment of animals has to be understood in the context of understanding human beings as made in the image of God. Animals are not made in the image of God. Animals do not have the value that God has instilled in human beings. But that doesn't mean that other view is right where animals are simply we can do what we like with animals because animals are part of God's good creation. So we find ourselves asking difficult ethical questions about how we can use, abuse animals, what's appropriate to do and what isn't an appropriate to do. Uh, I think it's a very hard question. It's a very hard question for scientific researchers because if you're a scientific researcher and you know that using uh, uh, rhesus monkeys for neurological research could well lead to, and I'm making this one up, could well lead to breakthroughs in dealing with Parkinson's disease, uh, you're in a bit of a jam, aren't you? You don't want to abuse the monkeys on the one hand, but on the other hand, the benefits are so great. So there's a non-answer. Um, my view is that we're not going to get any traction on this issue unless we can actually convince decision makers to be more long-term focused. And with our selfishness today and our short-termism, both in business and in government, for the reasons that you've just mentioned, have you seen any examples or programs or processes that encourage long-term thinking? I agree with you completely and I don't know that I have a, an answer to that. Um, politicians in Canberra seem averse to doing anything um, bilaterally, to getting some agreements that actually last beyond the election. They use everything for the election cycles, don't they? I don't know, does anybody else have an example of where uh, long-term thinking has... I mean, yeah. So if we don't rely on the politicians, what ought we to do? Power of the people. What does that look like? I don't know. Have you got an answer for me? Well, I think it probably means putting good politicians in place and call and letting them know what, what the people's will is. I think the politicians do respond to the will of the people. But enough people have to demand it. <laughs> One thing you can do is change your bank. Change your bank that doesn't um, use your money to power coal mines or deep sea oil drilling. Um, it's something that can be, is it, I guess, a small thing. But when a bank's getting a letter saying, I will not let you use my money to benefit this for these reasons that can potentially have an impact. Um, and if you're saying I'm changing to a bank that does not support this, you know, that's one way we can... Bank Australia. I actually bank with a, a teacher's bank that refuses to put money into um, non-renewable energy. Um, just thinking on like the long term and short term um, situation, like, it's kind of problematic because when you think about it, 
the way that we actually change legislation and the way that we choose leadership or protect leadership and actually do responsible decisions, they have the power to ensure what can happen. And so those that actually have power currently, they fear losing that power. And so they actually act in a way to stop anyone coming in that would suggest change to the system. And so under that system, I mean, sim you can think of some simple things. Like I've never really been into politics until like recent years or voting or anything like that because I just thought it was a complete farce. But at the end of it, you kind of think about it and it's like classic kind of modern Australian rocks up, cynical, doesn't really want to be involved, doesn't have the time. And they kind of go, oh, who do I vote for? Labor, Liberal or Greens? And they go, I want to just put in a little number, keep it really simple and just go with that. But the idea of researching who are good leaders or who are good parties, it costs too much time, effort and energy. The AEC certainly doesn't make that easy either. Um, and also, I think the simple thing is the parties kind of go, oh, yeah, you vote for this minor party. So that what, that's someone actually that does care and someone that does want to bring about real change and actually undo the system a little bit and make it a bit more free to do responsible change, yeah, they kind of get locked out. But, yeah. I have a question for um, anybody who knows anything about the large organisations that have a lot of power in our country, that manage billions and billions of dollars of Australian wealth. How do we get them to change? Okay. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> that's not what I expected. Um, I, I was going to make a comment. Um, okay, well, I, I think Australian Super, I, I don't want to be a spokesperson for my own company um, because I don't think I'm actually <laughs> endorsed to it. Um, but at Australian Super, the, we, we do have a, an ESG team, so they consider the environmental, social and governance um, consequences and, and implications of our investments across the whole group. And uh, we do say that we're long-term investors. And so we do consider um, the implications of what kind of companies we're investing in, not just, um, not necessarily from, you can say, just purely ethical point of view, but it purely, it's also from a, a um, an investment point of view of what makes a sensible investment. So a corporation that doesn't um, have good ESG um, practices and values, they tend to actually underperform the market. Um, and so in recognition of that, that's why we kind of factor that into a lot of our investment thinking. Oh, now I'm getting nervous. Okay. <laughs> but the only thing is, I think the, the um, a lot of these issues are quite complex. And I was going to sort of raise a couple of comments of, um, it's easy to say we won't invest in coal anymore but then what is the actual alternative? And what are the implications if, for example, coal companies go out of business? What does it mean in terms of baseload energy? Um, what does it mean if uh, a lot of people who have actually a lot of wealth can invest in their own solar powers, uh, panels and go off the grid? Well, the grid still needs to exist and it still has a cost. Um, and what that usually means is those that don't have enough wealth to invest in their own uh, energy will then be lumped with the higher fixed cost because there are less people to share that cost around. And so what that means is the poor will actually have higher energy costs as a result. So I think um, thinking through these issues, there's actually a number of things that are much more complex and much more nuanced. 
So, but it's good to actually keep thinking about them. Yeah, I guess that's what I was saying when I say we need to be careful of politically correct answers and the politicians have the task of trying to see the complexity of all and make the long-term choices that, um, and just shutting down all our coal power stations would be a disaster if we did that overnight, even though some people might think that that was a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, we should probably move on. Yeah. Wayne, go on. Um, I'm just going to make a comment and observation from my point of view that has nothing to do with politics. Um, so putting politics aside, I think one of the things that has been a big contributor to climate change is deforestation. Um, and some people have argued that deforestation for residential purposes has been the biggest contributor towards climate change. And I think one of my biggest worries is the uh, overpopulation of the world. And I think as human beings, there's actually more that we can do in terms of, and this is quite sensitive and controversial, but I don't think we do enough to think about how we can control the global population. Um, and I think that there is a big seat of, uh, I don't know how you would say it. I, I, I was watching a Netflix documentary recently about, I know Netflix, the great source of truth. Um, and it, it actually was about how Tesla um, has a space program to try and colonize Mars. Now it sounds like it's a big joke, but it seems like they're very serious. And there was a comment that was made by Elon Musk that I thought was quite disturbing. And he said that the only way that humanity is going to survive into the future is that if we evolve into a interstellar species. In other words, I think what he means is that there is no way for us as human beings to solve the problem of the world. And the only way that we can survive as human beings is to support programs like going to Mars. And I just think that on the topic of, you know, supporting, like, where do we put our money in companies um, in, in different, different research? I think there's something quite disturbing about uh, like investing in, in, in consuming from companies like Tesla that have this sort of warped view of how we should survive as human beings. So that, that's just my observation. Yep. Thanks, Wayne. I think we better finish. It would be an interesting conversation to continue, wouldn't it? But we won't now. Let's just pray to conclude that part of the service. Lord God, we thank you for the wonderful creation that you have made. Help us to always recognize it as your creation, to acknowledge you as creator and Lord, and help us to take seriously our responsibility to rule, to exercise responsible dominion, and our responsibility to love our neighbour. Help us all in our individual lives to, to be wise about the choices we make. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.